So yeah, the book of Romans, um, Paul's uh, magnum opus, as, as it is sometimes referred to. It's his, uh, an epistle to the Romans, a church that he hasn't visited, but he's heard of their faith. He, he says that, right? He says that he longs to come to them. He longs to have fellowship with them, impart to them some spiritual gift. He wants to establish them. And this is slightly different. It, it's the church he didn't make it to, so it's not so much about correction, but laying out everything he knows about the gospel, right? I can't say exhaustively, but so that you get the fullness of the gospel in one epistle. Over and over again, he's showing the Old Testament connections to the fulfillment of Jesus in the New Testament. He talks about his calling as, as an apostle. He talks about our calling, about the Romans' calling as believers. Uh, he talks about the glory of the gospel, how it's different from every other religion in the world, every man-made um, set of rules. And we'll pick up and we'll start right in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So Paul's boast is not in himself, right? His boast is in who Jesus is. The first thing he says is, I'm a bondservant to Christ. I've connected myself to Christ for life because he's that proper master who owes, I, I, who's owed all of my obedience. The first thing he says, he doesn't start off with, I'm an apostle. He starts off with, I'm a slave. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of weight to that word, the fact that Christ, rec excuse me, Paul recognizes that his proper place is underneath Jesus, and that is first and foremost. All of his, all of his uh, identity is found in who Jesus is and rather not in himself. Now, when it says of Jesus, it calls him the Christ. And we know that's not his last name, right? It's, it's um, the New Testament equivalent to, the, to Messiah, right? Messiah or Christ, it's, it's weighty too. It, there's a lot hanging on it. There's a lot of, it means a lot. It means that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Savior who's going to come. Right, the Savior that not only is a servant, right, as we read in Isaiah 53, but that He's also He's lifted up, He's exalted, He's extolled. The thing is, is that we're told earlier in the book of Isaiah that that language isn't to be used of anyone but God. We read in Isaiah 6 that when he, when um, the king when King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the th the Lord on His throne, high and lifted up, and then we read that same language used of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52, and then going into 53 about what he's going to, Isaiah 53, about what he's going to do, the life, uh, the death he's going to die, and then the life that he would have afterwards. He'd come back from the grave, there'd be a resurrection. So Jesus, right, we have, we have all these Old Testament prophecies about, you know, God's going to defeat death. Man introduced death into the equation, and God promised to defeat it. He then talks about who the person's going to look like that does that work. And then you, you get this, I, you've heard probably that there's those 400 silent years, right, in between the Old Testament, the last of the Old Testament books and the New Testament. But really what that is is that time where the clock is, is playing out. Remember the, the 69 weeks of years, that prophecy in Daniel 9, where there's going to be the 173,880 days from the going forth to rebuild and restore the temple. That was given to uh, Nehemiah and by, from King Xerxes to, right, this is Old Testament, to the coming of the Messiah, uh, the, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus arriving on that exact day. So as the 400 years are, are going by, really, prophecy is it's setting, there's a bookend on prophecy. It says that when he comes, he'll then be cut off, and then there will be a destruction of the temple. Nehemiah's, Daniel's writing that before there is even a temple in Jerusalem. But he's saying that when the Messiah comes, he'll die a violent death. It'll be uh, a judicial sentence. He'll be cut off, the same language that Isaiah uses, and then the destruction of the temple will happen. So the Christ, when you say that Jesus is the Christ, you can't just say that about anybody. Right? He doesn't just show up on the on the scene and demand your um, your allegiance without you know any credentials, without anything backing up to say no. This is me. I'm here now. He's actually shown up at the correct time, at the correct place, doing all the things about the Savior that the Old Testament said that He would do, the things that He would fulfill. 
So Jesus, he's fulfilling those things. Paul's making note of that. Jesus Christ. And then Paul, again, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. And there's so many things that as Christians we know we should be separated from if we're Christians, right? And a lot of the time we'll look at it as a list of rules. But if, if you're separated to God, separated to his gospel, it's a reward. There are things in life, right? Because Paul's saying, this is my calling. Or we're, so Paul recognizes that he is called to go to new places to present the unchanging gospel truth in, in areas that had not yet received it. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. And um, he's separated because of that, right? There's We have idea from history that he was married at a time because he was part of the Sanhedrin. He was part of um, the ruling Pharisaical class, right? And you had to be married in order to be part of that class. We don't read about Paul's wife. Whether or not he was married, we're not absolutely certain, but we have good reason to believe so. But in being separated, maybe that ended that relationship. I don't know. All I'm saying is that we know that there are certain things in life that we're to be separated from. As Christians, right, fornication and adultery, we're separated from that. Uh, drunkenness, we're separated from that. How about gossip, right? How about covetousness, petty theft? And here's the thing. It's, it's not so much, again, a list of rules, but if if do do we desire a rich relationship with God because God is promising us a peace in Jesus Christ that transcends all understanding and if if we're desiring a rich relationship with God it's going to separate us from those things right the peace that transcends all understanding is connected to a life that meditates on the promises of God Paul says, meditate on what is true, on what is noble, on what is just, pure, lovely, of good report. He said, if there's anything virtuous or praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Those things are going to result in thanksgiving and praise to God. He said, praise the Lord. I'll say it again, praise the Lord. You know, pray always with, with thanksgiving, with supplication and thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God will reign in your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. Do you want that peace? Well, then cut yourself off from the sin that easily ensnares you. Recognize what those things are because God is offering you something greater than that. Yahweh came in the flesh, delivered you from the bondage of sin when you trust in him. And he's offering you a greater relationship with him that's going to far surpass any fleshly endeavor that you've ever taken, ever undertaken. That is what Paul is recognizing, I am separated to the gospel of God for this reason. He is worthy, right? He's worthy in your life. He's worthy in my life. He is worthy. And again, listen, this is a promise God made. He promised to give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. And we want that. We want peace. How many, how many of us have gone on a diet? And as we started diet, like you just wish the craving for sugar would just go away, Right? Like that only happens through obedience. I don't know how many of us have ever beaten the craving for sugar. Um, and when we have, we've probably gone back to it. I know I have. But anyway, it, 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 it requires obedience. You've got to cultivate that, that type of thing, right? It's the same thing with a relationship with, with, with God. The thing is, is he promised this type of fulfillment in your life if you would make him your, your highest call, your your greatest pursuit. Okay. And then in verse two, it says, which he promised, this is the gospel, which he, God promised before through the prophets and his holy scriptures. The promise, the promise of peace that surpasses all understanding can be trusted because the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and died an excruciating death in your place. He kept that promise, right? He didn't owe that to you. He didn't owe that to me. None of us deserve that, but yet we can trust that God is going to completely fulfill every desire we've ever had because he's already, he's, he's already gone to the cross. What greater love is, is there than that, right? So you can trust the promises beyond that. 
beyond. There's nothing beyond that. You can, he who did not spare his own son, Paul says in Romans, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You can trust the rest of God's promises because he's faithful. So again, Jesus doesn't just show up out of nowhere. This is this is in massive contrast to Joseph Smith, to, to Muhammad, to uh, Charles Taze Russell in the Kingdom Hall, because these people show up out of nowhere and they say, no, we're of the book, right? We're of the Bible. And you need to have allegiance to our organization, to our religion, to our system of things, or you're not going, you're not going to go to the, the third heaven, the celestial heaven, or you're not going to get heaven in your, forgive me, but you're not going to get your 72 virgins, or uh, you know, you're not going to inherit the new earth and the new system that Jehovah is going to remake. These guys show up and they just say, no, look, you have to be a stat, you have to be connected to our organization. That's that's ridiculous. Jesus shows up. Remember, um, Luke 4, he's in Nazareth, and he stands up, and he, he teaches at the synagogue like he's accustomed to. And he reads the scroll, and then he sits down, and, and everyone's looking at him, right? He says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Everyone's gazing upon him, right? They have, they're, they're amazed at first, and they're like, wait, isn't this just the carpenter's son? And then they're so angry, they try to kill him. They try to drive him off a cliff. And then in Luke 7, John's disciples come to him because John's doubting in jail. And they say, are you the one to come or do we look for another? And it says in that very hour, he healed, he healed many with infirmities. He healed those who were blind. He said, go back to John and tell him about all of the miracles you've seen performed and that the gospels preached to the poor and they're being set at, they're being set at liberty, right? It, uh, John chapter 5, um, Jesus, he says, I don't need to make, I don't need to give uh, a witness of myself because there's another one who bears witness of me and that's the Father. Right? He says in verse 36, I have greater witness than John's, John the Baptist, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, they bear witness of me and that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen him. He says in verse 39, Jesus is saying to them, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are these are they which testify of me, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive an Antichrist, right? A Charles Taze Russell, a, a Joseph Smith, a Muhammad. Who can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But you do not believe in his writings, how you believe in my words. Remember in Luke 16, uh, this, the account of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man saying to Abraham, um, send one back so that my, my family can hear and he said, no, they have Moses. Let him hear them. And, the, and even if he says, even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe. Jesus is saying that. There's a prophetic witness in the Old Testament about who Jesus is. He's fulfilled those things. And if you can't believe the prophetic word given in the Old Testament, look at Jesus' life and recognize that he's the Messiah. You're not going to believe. If you have the writings of Moses and who they point to, you, you recognize they all, they find their culmination in Jesus that's, that's what you ought to throw your trust on. Because here's the thing. People show up and they make these great claims and they want you to follow their religions or give to their system. And, but Jesus, in verse 2, was promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. These things haven't changed. This is why we can, we can give Jesus our allegiance. He's not just Joe Schmo who showed up, your do showed up at your door. He's, he, he is the Lord of glory come in the flesh. Verse 3 says, uh, so concerning, excuse me, I'll read verse 2 to 3, which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness from the resurrection from the dead. So there's a connection there because all the messianic kingly prophecies are tied to David, right? So Jesus came in the flesh, uh, um, he was part of the line of David, 
and he fulfilled those messianic kingly prophecies. But also, we we know he's of the Spirit of God because he's it was declared to us. It was made known, right? He wasn't made the Son of God at his resurrection. He was declared the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So you guys understand all through his ministry, people are rejecting him because what Jesus is calling them to is humility and obedience. He's, he's saying that they're, they're to be in subjection to even the ones that are ruling over them. The Jews want a Messiah that's going to set up uh, religious, economic um, supremacy, right? He wants them to overthrow Rome and, and wants them to be the, the top of the world. But Jesus is he's saying, like, look, if they ask you to carry their stuff for a mile, take it for two. And that's so offensive to them. He's not fulfilling in their mind what the, what the Messiah is supposed to look like. And even though messianic is at such, the messianic fervor is at such a high, they're rejecting him even though he's performing all these miracles with the resurrection from the dead. Because the Jews understand that God alone gives life, Right. Even when he performs miracles, they say that he does it by the power of Beelzebub or the devil. But when Jesus is crucified and he dies and then he rises again, there's, there's this witness of the fact that, no, his life and his message was attested to. It got the stamp of approval from God because he actually came back from the dead. And one of the things, like, we, we can subject ourselves to a life of humility and obedience when we make God an end in himself, because so many people like the Jews post, you know, of Jesus's time, so many of them, they were looking to the Messiah to be something that would get, gain them material possessions or, or earthly status. They were using God as a means to an end, but a relationship with God should be an end in itself. And, and in, in that we can find ourselves in the lowest of places and the humblest of places and the worst of circumstances and still singing God's praise. We can sing God's praise regardless of where we're at in life, whether we have a lot or we have a little, whether we're hungry or whether we're starving, right? But if, if we're looking at it like I'm coming to God so that he can serve me, it's, it's not going to work out. You can fool yourself. There, there are churches in Amer there are churches in America that that make uh, success godliness. They make worldly success godliness. They equate the two, and I know you guys know who I'm talking about, and the the Joel Osteens and the Kenneth Copelands, and you go on. When God, when a relationship with God is an end in itself, that's where you're going to find peace. When you make God a means to an end, you are ripping yourself off. But that's that's large part of the reason why the Jews missed him. But he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Verse 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name. So Paul knows his calling and empowerment was a gift. And it's not due to his prestige. It says, through Christ, through him, we have received grace and apostleship. So he's been sent out to fulfill this mission, to fulfill this calling by grace, and he's been empowered by grace. It says we've received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. The faith is, as far as I understand, it's not the presence of faith in someone's heart or, or in their being. It is the essential doctrines of the faith, the truth of Christianity, obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name. So he's going to connect that with among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ. The Romans are living in the spiritual armpit of the world. Where they are, it's, a, it's not a good place to be. And he's saying to them, you are also, you are of the called who are in Christ. You have been called to know, love, and serve Jesus. And this message is to be preached among all the nations. There's no one God can't save. Don't let that become cliche, right? Because the drag queens in Knowlton Park, God can save them, right? The, I was watching. It's, it's tough because 
I wasn't watching. I was listening to. I was driving, and um, I think my wife was watching a reel or a, a short. I don't know what they're called. A, short, a video popped up on her phone, and she read the, the caption to me. It was, I think it was 64 uh, prisoners sing worship at state prison or whatever. And they're just pouring their heart out to God in praise. They're singing, they're singing Crowder, how he loved us, how he loves us, right? Just pouring their heart out. And I wasn't going to ruin the moment by bringing up to Alexis, oh, just imagine what those some of those men have done, right? We don't have to. I'm just, I know that, I mean, honestly, guys, God's, none of us are outside of God's reach. We, we need to confess and forsake our sin for sure. But I wouldn't be surprised if among those 64 men in a federal prison, there weren't some murderers, some rapists, some, some child molesters. Look. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's that's a horrendous. Those those sins are terrible. But the thing is, is God can save anyone. He can save everyone. And th- this is that gospel that must go to all the nations. Because there are some of us in here. We've done things, guys, that we don't want to tell people about. How much shame and regret do we have, right? Don't let that keep us at arm's length from Christ. Verse 6 again, among whom you are also the call of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God. Think of that, right? Because some of us, we don't feel loved of God. Some of us doubt it. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says that in other places in the New Testament that while we were at, enemy, at enmity with God, we were enemies of God, actively fighting against God. Jesus Christ came and he died for your sin. You don't have to feel like God loves you to know that he does because he demonstrated his love for you. That while you were still a sinner, Jesus Christ died for you. You don't have to doubt that. Okay, it's We're going to wrestle with it, but... I mean, how many how many of us are parents? Can I get some hands? How many of us how many of us aren't parents? Can I get some hands? Have you ever the ones that aren't parents, have you ever walked into a room and seen a little kid do something really cute and just lit up like, oh my gosh, that was just so cute. That was so sweet. Well, believe it or not, I bet everyone in here, but I'll just say most to be safe. Most parents in this room, we walk into a room, see our children doing nothing, and it brings us just absolute pleasure just to see them just be entertained, like not even doing something cute, just like staring at a truck and doing this. You're just, you're just lit up, right? Well, the thing is, is when God sees you, he sees Christ. You don't have to worry about whether or not God looks at you and is pleased. Right? We want to do things. We want to live to magnify God and, and spread his gospel throughout the world. But you don't have to worry about the fact that sometimes you sit alone and you do nothing but thank God. You, you just sit. Th- I mean, here's the thing. My kids, most of the time, when they're experiencing what they're experiencing, don't realize that they're not consciously thinking like, Daddy got me this. Right? Daddy's the reason why this, this is in my possession. And then I'll, they'll turn around and they'll be like, Daddy provides. Like, Daddy, can I have this? Can I have food? Can I have a drink? Can I have a, or, or Carice, who doesn't, doesn't talk yet, just when she sees me bolts across the ground, crawls to me, right? Like, that brings me joy, knowing that they look at me as the protector and the provider for them. God, when he sees you, he sees a perfect child. He sees you in Christ, Okay. So you don't have to struggle with, you don't have to worry about whether or not you're accepted in Christ. Have you confessed faith in Christ? Have you, have you forsaken your sin? Have you told God, look, my heart is corrupt and deceitful and I need you to change it because my ways are, are wrong, are wicked? Look, even if you're not, none of us are perfect. Even if you have thoughts every single day that you know you ought not to, if you've confessed your need for Christ and that, that your sin, I'm talking about repentance. I'm trying to put it in, in words that we can understand that are applicable. Repentance is recognizing the way God thinks is right and the way we think is wrong. If you can just get to the place where you recognize what God thinks is right 
and my condition is fallen and depraved. But what he's done is he's provided a way to be reconciled to him. And I trust that. God looks at you and he smiles. He walks in the room, right? I'm putting that in air quotes. He walks in the room and he is pleased. His face lights up the same way you would when you see your toddler just enjoying a gift you gave him, right? I'm going to try to not say right after everything, but... So to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. And that called, where Paul talks about his calling, his calling. He's a bond servant. He's found the right master. He's, he's walked his house. He's walked his house. He's walked his ear to the door of that house. Let Christ drive that all through his ear. He's connected himself to Christ for life. Let us do that. We, what we're to do, I don't know if everyone in this room is going to get a direct revelation from God. This is what you're to do with your life. But what we're, what we're to be is saints. Right? Paul says that right in verse 7. We're called to be saints. Whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, Paul writes in Romans 10, do it to the glory of God. The most meaning, meaningless act. Right? Even cats and dogs, they eat and they drink. Fish, hamsters, gerbils, foxes. We can eat and drink to the glory of God. We can do the most meaningless task to God's glory when, when we live in Christ. Matthew, Matthew 6, you guys know this verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. What you eat, where you live, what you wear, right? God's going to take care of these things. If you live your whole life as a, as a person of integrity, uh, Reading your word. I'm not, I'm not trying to make a list of things. I'm just saying, if you just live your life reading your word, praying and trusting God, and, and living with integrity, and then you die, God's still pleased with you. That's, there's no distinction between sacred and secular. Just be, we're not all preachers, right? We're not all missionaries to the Congo. We're not all evangelists. But that doesn't mean you can't live your life as a, as a plumber with integrity, as someone who details cars with integrity, as someone who works in a nursery and changes babies' diapers with integrity, you can do that to the glory of God. We're called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, that unmerited favor, that forgiveness that God gives to you through faith in Christ. And then the peace, the comfort of that forgiveness. That's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Be comforted by that. Grace to you and peace. Paul goes on in verse 8, First, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And I have my feelings about this verse. Not, I'm just saying, I think oftentimes we hear something like that, and we're like, yeah, those Christians are so united, and they're doing awesome things in the community. And they're unwavering on their faith and the truths of, the, of, of doctrine and the essentials and things like that. But it says it's, it's spoken of throughout the whole world. And hopefully that's true. Hopefully the community can praise us for our unity and our service. Hopefully there, there are things that we're doing that glorify our Father in heaven. But people are still going to hate what you're doing if you're doing it in the name of Christ. If you're calling people to repentance, is some of, is some of the things that Paul's hearing about their faith being spoken of throughout the world. Is that mockery? Is he all oh, those stinking Christians? They they think sex is only for a husband and a wife. They're primitive. They're weirdos. They they don't think that um, a man and a, two men should be married, right? They they take a stand against uh, these things, right? That God's saying is sin. Well, here's the issue: God is promising you fulfillment when you forsake your sin and follow Him. And when you take a stand on what is godly, on what Christ came and died for, when you take a stand on what Jesus wants to do in a sinner's life, sometimes you're going to get mocked for that. But the worst, the most hateful thing you can do is not, not take a stand on the truth. Let's take a stand on man's condition, God's provision, and the reconciliation that that, that can result in. God's provided salvation for everyone. We need to throw our trust on Jesus and turn away from our sin.
because God's promising something greater than what the world can give us. If we're going to be mocked for, for the truth, at least let it be for man's condition, God's provision, and the salvation, the reconciliation. Verse 9 goes on, For God is my witness for whom I, uh, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Now, Paul says this in other places. He says it to the Corinthians. He says something similar. Um, remember, the Corinthians are dealing with sin in the church, a lack of unity. He says it to the Christians at Ephesus. He's correcting their doctrine um, about, you know, they're living as if they're paupers, if they're beggars. He's saying, no, you, you have so much in Christ. He says it to the Philippians. Again, talking about unity and humility. Talking, He has to write to the Galatians about, excuse me, the Colossians about the preeminence of Jesus. And all the while he says, I make mention of you always in my prayers. He, he says that often. He says, I thank God for you all, and I pray for you continually. Yet he has criticism of their conduct. I was reading something in Ecclesiastes, which is it's hard to take everything Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes for what it says, because sometimes you wonder where Solomon's at. But he writes, um, I'm going to paraphrase it. He said, uh, don't, don't curse your servant for, oh, no, no. He says, um, he says, don't eavesdrop because you might hear your servant cursing you. But remember all the times that you've cursed other people. I was like, uh, that's convicting. Honestly, a lot of the time you're going to have just criticism of people. And sometimes you're not. You're going to say things that are completely unjustified. But either way, when you see something in someone else that you don't like, let it turn to prayer. Because Paul, even though he's, he's having to write these believers, right? he writes to, to the Galatians, he's like, how, how could you so quickly turn away from the gospel that was delivered to you, like to another gospel? Not, not that it is another gospel. And again, in the Greek, I don't know what there's two different words for that that's used for another. He's, he's simply saying, how can you turn away from the truth? But yet he's saying to all these people he's ministered to, I'm always praying for you. I'm thanking God for the faith that you do have. So um, let us, when we have a criticism against someone, especially a brother or sister in the body and those in the unbelieving world, when we have criticism, let us pray for them. Let us be like Paul who, and, of course, like Jesus ultimately. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, praying always. Verse 10, making a request, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. And Paul, in this, we have a glimpse into the fact that Paul doesn't always know what the will of God is. But he lives his life in pursuit of those things that would glorify God. You read in the book of Acts, they made plans. We, we, we wanted to pass this way. We wanted to go into Macedonia. We wanted to come into Asia. And then you read at times, but the Spirit prohibited us, right? He, they made plans based on wanting to further the gospel and glorify God, but yet God at that time wasn't allowing that to happen. Here, Paul's saying, I long to come to you. I long to find a way, some way in the will of God to come to you. Right. There's we there's a so there's like wisdom literature in the Bible. We have the whole book of Proverbs. So we learn about what God's like. We learn knowledge of God. We learn uh, about his character and um, his nature. And then we're also given books of wisdom literature like Proverbs that help us apply the knowledge we have in practical ways. Like in certain circumstances, this is the way you're supposed to behave. Because not all the time is God just going to – you. you I, I hate to burst anyone's bubble, but God doesn't need to tell you what you're going to wear every single day or what sneakers you're going to put on or what cereal you're going to eat, right? There, You can make decisions. We're called to be good stewards of our body. you you got to dress modestly. You shouldn't be eating candy nonstop. But you you have liberty in Christ, and you, you've also been given the Holy Spirit who's going to guide you, you to make wise decisions. Pursue those things that, that, that's going to glorify God and exalt Christ. And, and sometimes God's going to put a halt to it. There might be things that you want to do, and, and God's going to 
he's not going to allow that to happen. But in, in not that it's ungodly, but that it's not his timing. Verse 11, for I long to see that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so you may be established. Paul writes in at the end of this book in Romans 6.25 about this. He uses the same word for establishment. Um, I said 6.25. Paul, Paul writes, now to him who is able to establish you, that's that same word, establish, according to the gospel, to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To, to God alone, wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Paul's saying there at his, his benediction, right? He's saying the gospel of Jesus Christ is that thing that can establish you. I'm, I'm convinced that the desire Paul has to have them established by the spiritual gift he wants to impart is this office of apostolic ministry that he has to bring a clearer understanding of that gospel. He wants to deliver more clearly to them the gospel so that it would result in more freedom. It would result in more fruit. It would have more converts to the glory of God. And, uh, and then he says in verse 12, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. We're built up. We're encouraged by that. The writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake to, uh, the gathering together of the saints like some some teach, but rather, um, I can't remember, I'm going to paraphrase it, come together that we might be stirred up together toward love and good works, even more so as we see the day approaching. There is such a benefit. And again, there. There's no division between, you know, what's what's sacred and what's secular. If you're if you just feel like a carpenter, or whatever your job is, that's not true, because you're a carpenter to the glory of God. You're part of Christ's body. We encourage one another, guys. Don't take this cliche. I love you. Seeing you here, right, John, every week. Seeing you here builds him up. You guys understand he doesn't want to show up to a room, an empty room, and preach to, to, to brown chairs. It's it's the existence of Christ's church. It's the saints that reminds us God's not dead, right? He's still saving people, he's still at work, and it encourages, it builds up by mutual faith. Verse 13, Paul continues, Now I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So he says to them, I don't want you to be unaware. I've been trying to come to you. They're not unaware of the difficulty of, of travel. Paul does get to Rome eventually. We read about it in the book of Acts. He gets there in Acts 28. He's in handcuffs. He's, he's been through trial after mock trial after mock trial, really. It's, it's all just a joke, right? But he, he, he appeals to Caesar. It gets him to Rome, but not after a shipwreck, right? He runs aground, and he's shipwrecked off the coast of Malta. And then they swim ashore. He's bit by a snake. God miraculously, a poisonous snake, God miraculously sustains his life. They say, you know, he's cursed by the gods initially, but when he lives, they're like, he must be a god, and he takes the opportunity to preach the gospel. All that to say, they're not unaware of the difficulty of travel, but Paul doesn't want them to think that's what's keeping him from showing up to them. Paul has the desire to be there. And he says in verse 15, so as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. I want to come. I'm trying to come. And when you read through all of those things that Paul was willing to go through and Paul ended up going through and then being bold when in Rome, he writes that many members of Caesar's household are coming to faith and he's writing epistles from prison He's sending them out to the to the churches he's already helped establish. He's bold. He's filled with faith. That, that makes me wonder, what is my inconvenience? What is your inconvenience? What's stopping you? What's stopping us? 
What? Why aren't we in and out of season? Why don't we have a gospel of John on our hip or in our pocket, wherever it's at? Why aren't we prepared with the words of God in our mouth to share with someone and, and just, just say, hey, uh, can I pray with you? Like, how often, how often do we think, and I'm preaching to myself, how often do we think, oh, man, I want to, but it's going to take me like three hours if I'm actually going to preach the whole gospel to him and help him understand it. Right? I'm, I don't have three hours. Ah, such an inconvenience. Guys, Paul, Paul was willing to, to, to lay down three hours. I'm not saying it has to take three hours. I'm saying you can, you can say God bless you to someone and you can hand him a track or you could just ask, is there a way I can pray for you? Like, think of some corny cliche line. You know, Times are tough, huh? Can you believe how much the you know, prices have increased? You know, there's a free gift of God in Jesus Christ, and it's eternal life. Have you? Do you have a Bible at home? I'm just, I'm just saying, practically, there are ways we can just awkwardly. Don't get me wrong; it's awkward. It's always awkward to evangelize. But what's preventing us? What inconvenience are we thinking of that's preventing us from doing these, these things? And the last two verses I wanna I wanna cover, verse 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for her. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. There's a lot of things in life, guys, that we're probably ashamed of. I was here, was it last week, when John said, any of us have regrets, right? I heard most people in here laugh, and yeah, me. There are things that we've done that are that that are we're ashamed of, that are shameful, truly shameful, right? But that's why we exalt Jesus in the gospel. We don't exalt ourselves. And the thing is, is if this was of works, if this whole relationship was of works, then those things that we're ashamed of would have disqualified us anyway. None of us could preach the gospel. But the fact of the matter is, it's not of works. It's of grace through faith. It's because of the glory of God that is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ who died on a cross for us. That's why we lift up the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I mean, don't, don't make people hate you over your sports team. There are more important things to make them hate you over. If you're going to make them hate you, make it over the truth of the gospel, right? Don't make people hate you over your, your taste in music or whether or not, you know, or fruit, whatever it is. I'm just saying, like, don't pick fights over meaningless things. Like, stand up for the gospel. Live and die on that hill. Um, so it, it goes on. It's the power of God to salvation for her, everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And this is just a, man, a, a matter of order, right? Jesus came, Matthew 10. He sends out his apostles, his disciples. He says, go into uh, all of the, the countries of Judah, of, you know, of Israel, go into all the towns of Israel and preach the gospel. It says, don't go, don't go out into the others. Uh, and then in Matthew 15, he says, I've sent, um, I've come for the the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Right? He's talking to the uh, the Phoenician Assyria, the Assyria, Assyrian Phoenician woman. Um, he, when he first came, he was coming to fulfill the promises made to the Jews, and the gospel. The, the good news was to be preached first to the Jews. And he made that point even more emphatically uh, in, in Acts. He says, wait here, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power to preach my name first to in Jerusalem, to all Judea, then Samaria, right? Consider Gentiles in the uttermost parts of the earth. Start in Jerusalem, then all of Judea. Then Samaria. Paul and Apollos in the book of Acts says that uh, the gospel was first sent to the Jews. And I'm paraphrasing again. The gospel was first sent to the Jews. But because you guys have disregarded it and found been found unworthy, we're now going to go to the Gentiles. So it was just a matter of order. And in it, it says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous, the righteous requirement of God and also the righteous provision of God that is in Jesus revealed from faith to faith. My conviction is this is talking about faith in the Old Testament, justified by faith in the Old Testament. 
Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Uh, that's recorded in Genesis 15. Uh, David talks about blessed is a man who God does not impute iniquity to, but forgives, right? And Paul is, I, I believe he's making mention of how it was a faith in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant and it's a faith under the New Covenant. For as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He writes this in other places in Galatians. He writes it, he has it here in Romans 1. The author of Hebrews records it. And also, this is a, a quote from the Old Testament in Habakkuk 2.4. There is no different. God has been saving people who come to him by faith. That has been God's mode of operation from the beginning. Those who trust in his word, trust in his promises. There are, there are cult groups around us that, that do... Guys, some of them put us to shame, right? Because they sacrifice time to go and preach a different gospel. That is not truly good news. The Mormons have, uh, they have a book. And in 2 Nephi chapter 25, verse 23, it says, You're saved by grace after all you can do. Oh my goodness. You know where that comes from, right? It's Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 8. You're saved by grace through faith. This not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You're not saved by works. The Mormons make a really uh, make quite the effort to publish this idea that God has provided you grace, but now you got to do a whole lot. I had a conversation with two Mormons two weeks ago. They were at the park, and I saw them talking to a lady, and I just walked right up, and I walked right in. I introduced myself to the woman first, and then myself to them, and I helped cut that conversation off. And uh, toward the end of the conversation, I, I asked them, because they're super stubborn. They won't, we could go into it, but I'm not going to. One of the things I said to them was, are you confident that if you died today, would God receive you into his presence? Are you confident you'd be justified and you would be received into God's presence? And the first guy to talk, I can't remember his name. Uh, they don't tell you their first name anyway. It's always elder something. But anyway, um, he said, yeah, yeah, I actually am. I'm, I'm confident where I am today that, uh, you know, based on everything I've done, that if I if I stood before God, you know, he would he would receive me. He would accept me. And I said to him, I got to give you credit because you're literally the first Mormon I've ever talked to. And then the other guy echoed it. Um, I said, I got to give you credit because you're the first Mormon I've ever talked to that actually said that, yes, I'm, I am confident. Because most of them, they're just like, I don't know. Does the good outweigh the bad? But these two are confident that their they're good outweighed their bad. That, but uh, I said, the issue here is that you're adding works to grace. And I brought them to Galatians 5 verse 4. It says, um, you who seek to be justified by works of law, you have fallen from grace. Paul also says in Romans 11, verse 6, he says, um, it's a, if it's of grace, it's not of works. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. And if it's of works, it's not of grace. Otherwise, works wouldn't be works. You don't get to mingle both. You don't get to, you don't get to mix them. There's no mixture that God's going to receive. I said to them simply, if you add any work to the grace you've received from God, for your justification, you don't get any grace. You've fallen from it. That The gospel, the glory of the gospel is that we were separated from God, dead in our sins and trespasses, and trusting in Christ right, is not a work. Faith is not a work. Paul says, if it's of grace, it's not of works, because then it wouldn't be. A, some people want to argue faith is a work. Faith is not a work, because if faith is a work, then you'd be mixing a work with grace. And then you wouldn't get any grace. Faith is not a work. Faith is simply confessing, I can't do this. I haven't done this. I trust that you have. And then God's going to give you a new heart. He's going to cause you to delight in the law of God, hunger and thirst after righteousness. He's going to cause you to be filled. You will produce fruit. Real faith will produce fruit. And that simply comes through a confession of your need and your trust in Jesus Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that you have to have their understanding of God and Jesus, right, which is not biblical. Um, they say that you have to obey God's laws. You have to, uh, so which are weird things, right? You, you can't get a blood transfusion. Uh, you can't celebrate birthdays. You can't stand for the pledge. You can't be in the military, right? All these things, they have these long list of things that you can't do. There's actually, my wife just talked to someone the other day. The guy who owns John Edwards in Ellsworth is a, is a Jehovah's Witness. And she rented a space from him and she hung up 
uh, an American flag outside of her space, and he demanded that she took it down because it's against his religion. Because as a Jehovah, you also, another thing is you have to publish, right? This act of publishing, you have to be an active promoter every single month. You have to verify it somehow with the Kingdom Hall. You have to be part of the Kingdom Hall in order to be saved. When, when the Battle of Armageddon comes, this is their doctrine. When the Battle of Armageddon comes, you have to swear your allegiance to uh, their governing body or, or you won't be saved. Guys, this isn't salvation by grace. This is salvation by works. We could go, we could go through the list of times that the, the Roman Catholic institution has wavered back and forth between, between salvation by works or whether or not it's just all a grace because they, they can't make up their mind on it. The, the truth of the gospel is you're saved by grace through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, and no man can boast. You, God has demonstrated his love for you that while you are still a sinner, Christ died for you. And he looks at you and he is pleased. Don't let that be a, it's not a license, guys, for sin. You know that. He, he goes, um, what's it, chapter 6. Paul talks about living in sin after we've received the, the grace of God, and certainly not. How, how could we do that, right? Don't let it be a license for sin, but remember, you don't have to strive to do these things. Just simply recognize, have peace that the gospel of Jesus Christ has washed away your sin when you confess your need and forsake it, trusting in Jesus, forsake your sin, trusting in Jesus's, uh, in Jesus's provision. Um, God will, God will cause you to grow. We'll, we'll be knit together more tightly. We'll be bound together. Uh, we'll, we'll have great unity. Um, we'll have the word of God coming off our lips. We'll, we'll find great fellowship with one another. God will perfect, per, perfect us. He, he has saved us. He is saving us. He will save us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the glory of your gospel. Lord, thank you for, for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for buying our salvation and Holy Spirit for now indwelling us, all of us who believe, who have confessed and forsaken our sin, Lord, given all the glory to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that today we wouldn't we wouldn't function another another second without being confident in the grace that we stand, Lord, that we can come boldly to you in our time of need and receive grace and mercy, Lord. We thank you for communion, what that means, Lord, the way you poured your body out for us, your blood, that it was your body was broken on that cross. We just thank you, Lord. It blows my mind every day that I'm your child. I pray we'd all be humbled by that thought. In Jesus' name, amen.